Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You done with your Oreo? Yeah, <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, just talk about death. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm murdery thingy thingy thingy. It's going. Oh. Hello. Welcome. How are you? Yay. Sit down. What's up? Yeah, come sit Take down. Take a load off, us. you know. Stay Grab a, a cup of coffee. Um, I've got peppermint hot cocoa in the kitchen. Feel free to make like yourself whatever you'd like. Uh, welcome to Mystery Murder. Thing. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> My name's Chloe. My name's Mario. How are you, Chloe? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. And how are you? <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, so how can I help you today? <laughs> All right. And we're both now call center workers. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Are you ready to do the mystery murdery thingy? Thingy. Our mystery murdery thingy thingy. Is yours a mystery Ugh. and murdery or a thingy? I have two murder mysteries. I have a... Yeah, you said you're just I have a, real, I have a mystery murdery thingy. Yeah. It's a mystery murdery thingy. It's like, like the whole shebang. The kit and caboodle. It's, uh... Well, why don't I go first? Okay. 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 So, more murder mysteries from Africa this week. That's that's what... Well, yes, mine is also from Africa. What we promised. Um, and as I said last week, I'm, I'm uh, going to do a, an unsolved serial killer. Yeah, you um, are. So this is the one known as the Sleepy Hollow Killer. Um, who stalked the communities around Peter Maritzburg in the state of KwaZulu-Natal, or KZN, in South Africa from the late 90s uh, till about 2007, in two separate sets of incidents. So the Sleepy Hollow Killer's uh, MO, modus operandi, um, in the first spate of murders, uh, which again was like in the late 90s, 98, 99, um, was that he would sexually assault his victim Ugh. and then would kill them by strangulation using the victim's own undergarments, panties, <gasps> which is, you know, we've, we see right in, in other, um, this is not an MO that's super atypical, but it is very, very gruesome and unfortunate. Um, and he would leave his bodies near the N3 highway there in, in South Africa. Um, so 
at some point it kind of became obvious, right, to the authorities that these murders were linked, right, that there was a probable serial killer going on. We've talked about that recently, right? Like with these cases in, in Canada. British, yeah, in British Columbia. In British Columbia, right, where you, you, you see a similar MO and come, it becomes obvious at some point, okay, there's probably a serial killer at work here. So um, in 2001, an inquest was convened and seven women's bodies, victims' bodies, were exhumed. Um, for analysis and also to attempt a facial reconstruction. Um, but apparently that was not successful. They never released any photos or anything, which we've I've seen in other cases, you know, where they'll, they'll exhume the body, use the skull to create a reconstruction of the face, and then release photos or a sketch based on that or something. But that, that would, didn't actually end up occurring here. That is so mind-blowing that that's even a thing that yeah, we can do. I know. And that it's like relatively successful and it's used in in paleontology and archaeology well i guess archaeology right not paleontology but um you know where they'll you know reconstruct the faces of these you know ancestors of ours and it's used in forensic analysis yes. and, and like reconstruction that way but of course now a lot of it's done by computers but i think some of it's still done by clay anyway um that inquest was uh concluded at the end of a year, at the end of 2001, with no clear indications as to what happened. So that they didn't really apparently come to any real <laughs> solid conclusions at all. Uh, and it seemed that, you know, um, there was kind of this lull, right, where, it, okay, and, and then it stopped happening, which is not atypical of serial killers either, to take kind of a, a break or a hiatus, yeah. right, either between the first kill and the next kill, or between a set of kills and then another. And, and unfortunately, that seems to have been the case here as well. So the Sleepy Hollow Killer seems to have kind of reactivated uh, between February and October of 2007, over which time there were the bodies of three more victims found, kind of right you know, oh, wow. near, near each other in time as well as, as space. And they bore other of the hallmarks of the MO of the Sleepy Hollow Killer. They were strangled with their own panties, and they were sexually assaulted. But there was a difference here as well. The bodies were, unlike the first, you know, set of victims, severely burned post-mortem. And it's unclear as to why the killer would have done this. He's escalating. Escalation, perhaps. There's another, you know, hypothesis that I, I read from an anonymous in investigator um, that it was maybe to cover up evidence because they knew that the M.O. would be tied to the earlier killings. Who's to say, right? I mean, and in, again, as we talk about, sometimes the motivations uh, and the quote-unquote logical thinking that goes into the mind of someone who would be capable of doing this is not necessarily rational in the way that you and I and almost everyone else would understand, right? So who's to say why they did this? But th I think those are, are all good. That's a good um, point. Good hypotheses, right? Well, it kind of made me think of, you know, we, we've been watching Mindhunter, and they I think they talk a lot about that. Which we should watch after this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, you know, where the, it, the path from A to B might not be the A to B that we, you know, that right, we, that we right. think of or we understand. And that's important when you're trying to, like, catch someone who's doing things like this. Um, so anyway, um, the uh, bodies were also found near the N3 highway. So there, there were some other victims, possibly as well, um, in other communities surrounding there, uh, like Bloemfontein. 
uh, if that's how you say that, in the central part of South Africa, and then several hundred miles south yeah, in Port Elizabeth as well. There are some victims that may or may not be linked. And, um, yeah, so okay, I already talked about that. And, um, yeah, also about that with the, with the hiatus and everything. So, anyway, um, after the killing of as many as 13 victims in the 90s, is that's how many it ended up being, okay. and at least three in 2007, it's thought that the Sleepy Hollow Killer, um, if in fact this is kind of like this one singular serial killer, could be responsible for as many as 16 deaths or more. And eventually the police superintendent, Henry Budrum, decided to create a special task, uh, kind of yeah. forest task team to look, to look into this and, and kind of see, you know, what was going on. Um, and six experienced officers were, uh, tasked with looking into the killings led by senior superintendent Gops Govinder. And they were tasked to quote, investigate the murders and examine all the circumstances, modus operandi and material evidence for all cases. Um, and a, quote, top psychologist attached to the SA Police Service's Investigative Psychology Unit in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, had visited Peter Maritzburg in November to assess if a serial murderer was at work, close quote. Um, and that type psychologist thought there probably was a serial killer at work here. Um, which is not that hard to discern, right? But it does kind of, you know, sub substantiate it um, with more evidence and, and kind of like a deeper knowledge of these things. But this was not necessarily a foregone conclusion either, I think, um, since there were those differences between the two bunches of murders of these women. And also there are just a lot of murders, unfortunately, going on, um, not only in South Africa, which according to one index, the Nobeo, uh, crime index is the th at this point like around 2016 the third most dangerous country in the world wow behind only Venezuela and South Sudan not only that but this city Peter Maritzburg was in that same index listed as the most dangerous city in South Africa holy shit yeah there was one source I was I was like, like wait what what time period um around 2016 okay yeah, um, that's what the, the source that I had, that's when it was from. I'm not sure when the index was from necessarily, but around that, you know, around that time. And the index itself, I should say, like the some of the methodology behind it was not necessarily, I think that sound, it, it in part uh, was like a self kind of, um, you know, where, where, where they would just ask people questions. So it wasn't necessarily the most scientific either, but this was a very dangerous place. There were a lot of murders going on. Um, you know, it's safe to say, and this high crime rate, um, definitely impeded the investigation into these murders, this, you know, task force right. that was set up, um, you know, not only because, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on, but because, um, reportedly the investigators were not allowed to just focus on these, this supposed serial killer. They also had to take care of all the other crime and well, everything that they can't, right? Like. I'm not really sure how that I mean, usually maybe works, if you have but the people, but there was a in in some of my sources there was a sense given that um, this investigation was not given really like the um, attention that it needed to be that okay. it wasn't given as central a place as like the police made it out to okay, in a sense, okay. and also of the people that were convened, you know, the six experienced officers, some of them eventually uh, quit. 
some of them, uh, one of them got killed in a car accident, unfortunately. So, and they were not um, replaced. And eventually, the funding also dried up, and then there there was no task force, um, and there was no real conclusion as to whether there was circle or not, who did it, any anything really. Nothing really ever ended up coming of it, unfortunately. Whoa. So, yeah. Um, there were three victims that were eventually identified, but only three that were ever identified uh, by name. Um, and they were uh, Nemusa Dlomo, found New Year's Day 1998 in Mokindi. Uh, Pretty Shalembe, found in May 1998 near the Umkomas River in Boston, uh, or Bulwer. Um, Adrina Mbukazi, who was found in June 1998 in Howick. Um, only one possible perpetrator ever really arose in like any of the research that I did. And he, w- he was a person who was arrested for, um, that we, you know, kind of, I guess is more solidly that killed this woman near Howick. But the crime really only supervis- superficially uh, resembled the Sleepy Hollow Killer's M.O. And, and the the connection seemed pretty tenuous. Like, people were kind of, it seemed like, grasping for s- some suspect that it could have been. Okay, yeah. It was a reach. It was kind of, it seemed kind of a reach. And the superintendent, Budram, that I mentioned earlier, he said that he did not believe that the murder was linked or that this was the sleepy, purported sleepy hollow killer. Um, and yeah, like, so that's all I, <laughs> I could really find on this one. In, in, unless there's some kind of break in the case someday, but I don't know. doesn't seem like there would be. So that's the sleepy hollow killer. That's Yeah. Unsatisfying. Yeah. That one was unsatisfying. Sometimes, sometimes mysteries are unsatisfying. <laughs> it's kind of the niche. Embrace the mystery. Um, but also f- investigate, find out who, who did these things. Uh, please, <laughs> you know, not that people in fucking Pretoria are listening to me, but you know. Well, it's funny because mine is a mystery for the, some of the same reasons, but we'll it's get into it. funny that. how that happens. Okay, I'm going to do one more um, of these African murder mysteries, um, at, le- at least for now. I guess maybe we'll do another episode in the future. So anyway, my second story is about um, the killing of another woman, unfortunately. And in this case, it's the killing of lesbian and gay rights activist Fanny Ann Eddy. Uh, Fanny Ann was from Sierra Leone, um, not a generally welcoming place to gays and lesbians, unfortunately. Um, maybe less so in 2002. I don't know. Maybe it's worse now. I'm not really sure. Uh, it's not been good for the, that whole period of time and or at, at, at any time, really. Um, part of that is due to the colonialization and the laws that were created at that time, which were discriminatory and have persisted. Uh, some of it is a, is a sort of misguided notion in some of the leaders and people in Africa that being gay, lesbian, etc., is, you know, somehow not African, not like endemic to the African spirit or something. It's ridiculous. People say the same thing about America, that it's not like American somehow. It's well, ridiculous. none of the argues again. None of the arguments against um, LGBTQ rights are, are make any sense ever. No, no, they don't. None of them are logical at they all. Ever. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but preaching it's, to the choir. <laughs> it's just infuriating. Um, and and just to I guess give some context and a sense of like who this person was, right yeah. at the outset, the, the, she would have also vehemently agreed <laughs> with all of that. Um, but in, unfortunately, she was living in a country that 
which most people didn't. You know, most people were were pretty discriminatory, it seems like, or at least the authorities and, and the official kind of line, you know. Um, so anyway, in the face of all of that, Fanny Ann founded um, the first of its kind in Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone Lesbian and Gay Association, um, to, to bring people together, to bring help and visibility to the gay, lesbian, uh, transgender, you know, uh, et cetera, community uh, in Sierra Leone. And, you know, again, she was one of these people that we've talked about so many times, right, who faced certain danger but chose to persist in what she knew was right, what she had to do, what was her duty in a sense, right? And she felt a strong duty to herself, to other people, you know, especially, um, you know, sexual minorities who were, you know, uh, being uh, persecuted. So... Um, Fanny Ann's ad advocacy led her, you know, not only to prominence in her native country of Sierra Leone, and she did end up becoming a very prominent person and, and advocate in her in her country, but throughout Africa and, and even globally, as she traveled um, throughout the African continent and eventually to the UN wow. Um, wow. In, in Geneva to advocate on behalf of gay and lesbian rights in Africa and, and a specific... Um, uh, like motion to, you know, um, to that effect, you know, at, at the UN and she like tracked down her country's, um, you know, whatever you call it, uh, mission or whatever to the UN with who I can't, I can't believe would be very receptive to what she was saying, but she tracked them down and like made them listen and say like, you need to vote for this. Like there are people like me, like you cannot deny because the, you know, some rulers will do that, you know, in Africa or whatever. You know, there are no gay people in my country. Well, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> there are gay people in every country at, time at every name, time in the whole fucking names. world. Time it's to so point stupid. people out. Oh, it's, it's so stupid. Um, so anyway, she gave, gave this address, you know, to the UN conference in Geneva in 2004. Um, and she said that people like her face, quote, constant harassment and violence oh, um, in Sierra Leone and that quote, homophobic attacks go unpunished by authorities, further encouraging their discriminatory and violent treatment of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, right. close quote. Right, it just increases it. People get bolder. And unfortunately, that same year, a few months later, Fanny and Eddie would become a victim of the same violence, perhaps, that she spent her 30 years advocating against. Yeah. And I say perhaps because... A lot about her murder, her very unfortunate murder at 30 years old, leaving a 10-year-old son and a girlfriend behind. Um, a lot of it's very mysterious. Um, so let's let's kind of get into that. So on the morning of September 29th, 2004, Fanny Ann Eddie was found dead in the offices of the advocacy organization that she founded, right? The Sierra Leone um, Lesbian and Gay... Um, Alliance, I, I can't remember exactly. So um, it seemed that multiple assailants had broken into the office the night before when Fanny Eddy was working alone, that she had been sexually assaulted, stabbed, and that her neck had been broken, oh, um, and that her body was left there until it was found the next morning. Um, and um, here's kind of a quote of... Um, from the uh, Human Rights Watch, um, just kind of reacting to the, the news of this from their director of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights project, uh, Scott Long. 
quote, Fanny and the, uh, excuse me, Fanny and Eddie was a person of extraordinary bravery and integrity who literally put her life on the line for human mm -hmm. rights again and again within her country's borders and beyond. She drew attention to the harassment, discrimination, and violence lesbian and gay people face in Sierra Leone. Now she has been murdered in the offices of the organization she founded, and there is grave concern that she herself has become a victim of hatred, close quote. But like I said, many things about um, this murder remain mysterious to this day. Um, it's not clear how extensive of an investigation was done, you know, at least in the research that I did. We don't even know that? It wasn't totally clear because there were some indications that there, there was some forensics done, there was some police work put into this. Um, but then, again, <laughs> like a fucking broken record, right? At the at, let me just spoil right here the end of this. There's not going to be an answer because obviously, right? It's a mystery, but it's again one of these where it just seems like no proper investigation was really done. So, but but it's a little more complicated than that. Um, so the let me try to get get back on track to my write up. So um, okay, so yeah, she was um, okay. So so there were there were aspects of the crime that were very contested in some of the sources that I read that just said like conflicting things and the criminal investigation division of the Sierra Leone police force. They were the ones who took the lead right on investigating the crime. They contended that there was no evidence of sexual assault, but that the manner, uh, likely manner of death was strangulation, not the snapping of her neck. So the, the, the cause of death, the trauma of the body itself it is contested. But I, I didn't read about any sort of like autopsy or say, coroner's yeah, report or on? I don't It's just based on what people are hearing is that's kind of the sources that I was read. Somebody tells someone something else and it gets reported in the news. Was there a lot of attention drawn to it in general? Yeah. No, it was a huge. Um, yeah, it, it, it was. Uh, there was a lot of attention brought to it okay. uh, in the press and everything and by some of these international organizations who, you know, with whom she had been working. But, um, despite that, it, it doesn't, see, I, I just never read about an autopsy. Isn't that weird? Wouldn't you think there'd be an autopsy done? I mean, to at least establish, okay, what was the actual cause of death? What was the actual trauma done to this person's body? I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't see anything about that. Um, so the, obviously the perpetrator of the crime as well is, is a mystery. Um, but there was a prime suspect that was found and arrested, um, not long after the crime occurred actually. Um, but, but yeah. here's the kicker. Yeah. He escaped from custody while he was in, Are you shitting in me? the court in custody awaiting trial. Along with, like, many other prisoners who just escaped. Now, the thing you have to understand, and this came up many times in my research, was that Sierra Leone at this time was, was just coming out of a horrible civil war. There were no good civil wars. But, you know what I mean. Um, for over ten years. So, the infrastructure, especially in terms of the judiciary, was, you know, more than decimated. A lot of chaos. So that makes it a little more understandable, not 
not un, not understandable. It, it it explains why these conditions may have been. You know, I don't want to excuse it. Obviously, they, they should keep their prisoners in fucking custody before you know they don't run out. So anyway, this guy um, was a, a janitor at the organization that Fanny and ran until a few weeks before her murder occurred when he was fired. And when he left, he said he was going to, quote, take revenge. Why is that a so, so com- Why is that it's, so you know, common? But does that mean he was the killer? I don't know. That's true. It makes it more likely, sure. But does that but necessarily mean he was the killer? Do they think it was killer? multiple people? Well, that's the other thing. Most people think, including the police, think it was multiple people. So even if it were him, there's still other people out there. So was it a political act or was it an angry act? We don't know. The motive is also mysterious. We don't know if it was a personal grudge, if it was motivated by bias against her because she was an advocate. We just don't know. It's mysterious. It's galling as hell, but we just don't know. But a lot, I mean, a lot of people do think that it had to do with her advocacy. But those people also want to think that. And I'm not saying anything against them. I'm not saying that they're wrong or right. I'm just saying that we don't know. Like period. we don't know. <laughs> Again, yeah, I just want to underline that it's like I'm period. not making any conclusions. Um, but I think it's understandable that people want to think that, you know, because it it fits this narrative of her as as a hero, and she was a hero, but she was a hero long before she died, right? And whatever had happened with her murder, she would still be a hero. Interesting. So I don't know. Um, like I said, she unfortunately uh, unfortunately left behind a ten year old son, um, her girlfriend uh, Esther Chicalipa or Chicalipa. Um, she, of course, you know Fanny and Eddie continues to have an effect through her work in the struggle for sexual rights around the world, but especially in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a poetry award named after her, and of course her organization at least one source from 2016 said it was still going i assume it's still going now um and i wanted to just kind of end with an extended quote from Susanna fried or freed at outright action international who apparently knew fanny ann um quote fanny ann eddie broke the silence for us all she courageously brought the struggle for freedom and dignity in her own country to the world stage last week that voice was silenced forever As Fanny Ann worked late in her office in Freetown, several men broke in, raped, and brutally murdered her. To all of us who knew her and shared the great privilege of her wit, sense of the absurd, steely determination, intelligence, and unwillingness to let bureaucracy and lies stand in the way of justice, our loss is incomprehensibly great. Close quote. Wow. I just thought that was a very powerful quote. Yeah, yeah. And again tells you the cast in which, you know, again, I, I think I, I said this in the last episode, sometimes it's not as much about the verity of what actually occurred, uh, or it's not so much about the, the, the verisimilitude of what actually occurred. It's about the verity of like what is perceived to have occurred. This is the cast in which this person's murder was seen. So that's kind of how we understand, you know, this mystery. So those are my two for the week. That was good. And my sources, sources. uh, Sherlissa Peters and Candace Subramoni at IOL, um, Ingrid Ullerman at The Witness, uh, Wikipedia, (laughs) 
The Sleepy Hollow Killer and Fanny Ann, Eddie Pages, uh, BBC News, Human Rights Watch, uh, Susan Fried and Paula Edelbrick at Outright Action International, Africa Online News, and Laura Mills at Making Queer History. Wow. Okay, now it's your turn. It's my turn. It's fun to take turns, I think. But then my mom was a kindergarten teacher. Oh, correct. (laughs) Was, I say. Oh, could Recently retired. All right. I, it's funny that your first mystery was in South Africa, because so is mine. Um, Connection to South Africa. Not like in South Africa, but, because I'm talking about a, a plane crash. So in the waters between South Africa and Taiwan. We'll, we'll talk about it. So yes, let's explore what happened to South African Airways Flight 295. Ooh, oh. <laughs> what, what is it, I wonder? So It sounds like it's going to be really uh, tragic and inappropriate to joke about. <laughs> just, just a moment. Just wanted to get the giggles out just right at the beginning. The giggles you remember when we were watching that YouTube video of like that um, local reporter who they had the really funny story, and then they just hit her with the, like, death story, and she was, like, still giggling she through the like, whole thing. She was like, this is how I lose my job. I remember she oh, specifically yeah, she was like, said that, and I was like, Today you know, she might, I lose my job. So... Right, you just might. You just might. <laughs> you just might. <laughs> nice thing about having a podcast where you don't get paid, can't lose your job. Can't lose the job itself. Job. Okay. That's right. Moving on. So, I'm going to start with the basics. So, uh... Flight 295 was a Boeing 747 flight, and um, on November 27th, 1987, it was traveling from Taiwan to South Africa. Very long, long flight. So, nine hours into the flight, the relief crew, uh, they're done with their shift, so they switch, so the main crew can take over, Um, and... They were doing a routine stop to the island of, um, I think it's Mauritius. I'm not sure. Mauritius? Mauritius. Yeah, Mauritius. Island of Mauritius. M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S. Yes. Mauritius, yeah. Um, So among those on board were 71 South Africans, including 19 crew members, 47 Japanese, 30 Taiwanese, two Australians, two Mauritians, two from Hong Kong, and one each from the Netherlands, Britain, West Germany, Denmark, and South Korea. So this was a flight of people all over the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the plane layout itself, uh, it's called it's called a modernized uh, 747 uh, combi, which is like combination. Um, and it was called the Heldeberg. So it was um, a very reliable, trustworthy, safe plane. It was useful and um, um, made for long-range flights. Um, it's designed to carry both passenger and cargo. So it's it's a big, big plane. So pictured, you know, like a huge commercial airliner, right? And at the bottom, it has two huge cargo areas... And then there's the whole rows of seats. And then at the back, behind the passenger seats, is another um, cargo hold. And the co- there's the cabin, and the cockpit is one level above the ca- cabin. It carried 159 people that day. And it 
held six large pallets of cargo. I think it said it could hold like six to 12 or something like that. So, I mean, obviously things don't go well. This is a... I'm sensing that. Doom. Impending doom. Yes. Um, the sort of Damocles hangs very... over their heads. There's a, it's weird. It's weird. Well, okay. <laughs> um, one hour before landing on the island, the smoke alarms went off in the cargo area behind the passenger seats. So by the time, you know, people are alerted, the fire is raging and smoke is everywhere. So when there's any kind, like when there's any kind of fire emergency, the crew is trained to go through special like safety checklists to manage the fire. Um, so one of the first things was that they're instructed to land at the nearest airport, but the nearest airport was um, the island of Mauritius Airport, and it was still about 186 miles away. Oh my god! Yeah. So, um, you know, circuits start popping. Um, the fire starts burning through wiring and. Uh, causes short circuits, like the instruments there start to lose power. Um, and at this point, smoke fills into the cabin and passengers are having trouble breathing. Um, one member of the flight crew is asked to fight the cargo fire. Captain Ice, which I think that's how you say his name. U-Y-S. What do you think? Ice? I guess so, yeah. Captain Ice does... Um, an emergency descent and he requested a full emergency and um, he is in contact with air traffic control um, with the airport and he they get in contact just before 4 a.m. So at this point, the smoke is thick and it's noxious. It's 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 toxic smoke. Mm -hmm. It was pouring into the cabin. Um, and at this point, uh, the captain is, is losing sight like he's confused, doesn't know where he is. The instruments are down, um, but they continue to follow the instructions from the checklist. And in between controlling the fire and helping passengers, um, one of the crew members goes to back to to like check out the cabin and sees that the smoke is getting even thicker. So they are forced to do like this is last resort. They're forced to do an emergency uh, maneuver that is rarely ever performed. And they were forced to open the door. <gasps> yeah. So. They intentionally opened the door. Wait, 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 wait. There's a way. I guess there's a way. Um, only hope of the only hope is it's really their only hope right now. Sitting the smoke. But you said they already descended, right? So they're not. They're descending. Have, they're descending. Okay. So once the plane descends to 4,500 meters. That's when it's like safe. So right. like you won't have the explosive decompression. Exactly, it's safe for the passengers to breathe that outside air, and the pressure was enough to force air out quickly, but not dangerously. Okay. Um. So that's when they open the doors, and there's lots of airflow, and um, as that air is going out, smoke still tries to keeps entering, and then all then uh, it's in the cockpit. But the oh. cockpit it's totally enclosed. It, there's no. Right. door for them to open. Right. Um, air traffic control continues to give instructions um, needed for the emergency landing and uh, the airport. They're getting the runway um, ready and they're getting, you know, crews out there. Um, 4.08 a.m. is when the plane stopped responding. Uh, there was no response for 36 minutes. Uh, emergent, so 
after that, an emergency was formally declared. Search and rescue crews uh, head out and officials are alerted. And the flight waiting uh, back home at the Johannesburg, is it Johannesburg or Johannesburg? I think people say both. Johannesburg Airport is officially changed to delayed. So there's like people waiting there. They talked uh, with one woman and she was waiting for her parents because they're about to go on holiday. Mm-hmm. And she was like just waiting. Like she was like, oh, the plane's delayed. And like, oh, that kind of sucks. Like, yeah, like I'll wait here a little while. And then like, you know, mm-hmm. like wildest, wildest nightmares. So the aftermath. They do searching all throughout the night. And um, a rescue plane sees the first sign of sign of aircraft wreckage um, afternoon the next day, so about eight to ten hours later. Uh, Rennie Van Zale, he is assigned to the Heldeberg case. He's one of the um, um, main investigators. So. He's looking into this, and this is rare. So, like, major accidents, especially on Boeing, 747 Boeings, um, uh, at this point, it was was 87. So, this was the first time in in a 20-year history that that someone had died Mm. on the Boeing, especially um, by um, smoke inhalation. So, people were extremely stunned, you know. Um, It's rare. As they keep looking, they find eventually find that eight bot. They find eight bodies found in the water, and once they um, do blood tests and autopsies, they find traces of soot in the trachea, and they they like confirm that at least two died of smoke inhalation. So, uh, what they what they are guessing is that even as the crew was trying to land the plane, some of the passengers were already dead. Mm-hmm. And, um, that timeline also, they talk, we'll talk about the timeline a little bit later as well. That also, there's also clues that show that. So a life raft, a life raft and dungy were found. Um, but that's really it. Like all the passengers were presumed dead. Mm-hmm. 159 people. Media goes crazy, you know? And at this point we're trying to figure out what happened, what caused the wreck, and there was already like a sinister feel when, you know, the news came out and people immediately were like, oh, this isn't good. This was on purpose. This was, you know, um, an attack, a deliberate attack. And um, note that this is 1987. So this is um, the apartheid is happening in mm-hmm. uh, South Africa. Right. So there's a lot of tension. And, um, and there have been planes that were hijacked and bombed like not you know too long before this or around the same time i'm trying to remember when the lockerbie incident was i think that was in the late 70s that was like a really famous um is that also a plane crash plane crash yeah that was i feel like, like i've heard of that a terrorist incident when did it happen i'm gonna look it up okay. keep going um, um 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 so and as they're looking through the debris you know it takes a long time mm-hmm. and they found three watches and that gives them the time of probable impact. So uh, they determined that the impact was uh, about three minutes after the last communication with the plane. So it flew for 22 minutes before going down. So mm. once it like really went down, it went down fast. 
Answer, 1988. 1988. So, oh, wow. So, yeah, it was actually... A year after this. A little after. So, um... The plane itself was was part of the South African Airways. It was part of like the the fleet. You know, it was a very reliable plane. It um it was technically a like a government body. It was owned by the government, um, and they changed their air routes to protest the white regime. So the, at this time, black African countries forbid their planes to fly over. Um, that airspace, and so their routes were longer. They um, would fly around the bulge of Africa over the to the Atlantic, so they would go around instead mm-hmm. of across. Um, there were lots of sanctions on South Africa. They were not welcome. And in the years leading up to the crash, uh, Southway South. South African Airways, um, their offices all over the world had been a target for massive violent protests. Um, and like I said, the plane was like a basically owned by the government so that people were definitely, um, skeptical, you know? So the investigation they needed. So there's, there's the main things that they got to find, right? They need to find the black box and the voice recorders. And they basically just need to find as much debris and wreckage as possible. So, uh, South Africa turns to the U S for help. Uh, so they, they hired a, an American salvage company, uh, to find the black boxes. So just a little quick info about the black boxes, black boxes run on these like battery type things called pingers and they transmit a single, a, a signal and that signal has about a 30-day guaranteed shelf life. So after that, there's mm-hmm. not much of a chance that they're going to, you know, um, connect to it and detect something. So they were racing against the clock at this point. So by the time the equipment was being finalized, uh, it was seven days remained before the expected battery would, would die. And the signal would no longer be um, detected. So... They continued to search through debris, and they found a... So so they're looking at all types of clues, right, to determine what happened. And they found a melted graphite tennis racket. And graphite burns at higher than... Gets up to, like, 1,100 degrees. So that's when graphite burns. So this mm. fire was very, very, very hot. And... um that might explain why also there was a, a fully charged fire extinguisher that was uncovered um, that was originally in the front of the plane. Um, and there was me- like a melted piece of cargo netting was found on it. And um, this suggests that a crew member like grabbed the extinguisher from like the passenger cabin and then brought it to the cargo area. But for some reason or another, it was never discharged maybe because it was hot and there was melted metal found on it. You know, this fire was Mm. absolutely intense. Yeah. So like they were running toward the fire and the extinguisher itself was like getting too hot to hold or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now the questions that remain here are what was in the cargo and how did the fire start? So at this point they start looking at weigh bills and stuff. Right. And they determined that that there were 47,000 kilograms over 100,000 pounds of baggage and cargo on board. So they also discovered that 
before takeoff back in Taiwan that there was there was actually like a random cargo inspection that you know just they do for safety precautions and nothing suspicious was found. Huh. So it just happened to be one of the ones selected for the random. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So they actually know pretty much. Right. Unless something got missed. Unless something got missed, right? Uh-uh. I mean, we don't know. So at this point, it's been more than 30 days since the plane went down, and uh, investigators are still struggling to find the rest of the wreckage and the black boxes. And at this point, it's about money. So the investigation has cost $1.5 million, and they kind of reach a standstill, and it would have cost millions more just to keep going. So... The investigation stopped, and people started to hear about that. And there was tension. You know, what do you mean you're just not going to investigate anymore? Um, the head, the head, the head investigator, um, Ronnie Van Zale, uh, has to make a decision at this point to continue or not. Um, but they did. They did spend the money, and they continued. Sixty-one days after the crash, uh, sonar. They had like special sonar all over the place detected a large object about 4,400 meters way, way down underwater, um, on a fault plateau. And there were, it was huge. Um, it wasn't like, um, I don't really know how to explain it. I mean, you probably already know, but it was, it was like a, um, a chart with a ton of black dots on it. And like, just like on the sonar, they could see that mm-hmm. there was something there. Mm-hmm. It was like a shadow or something. Sure. Um, so it could be the Heldeberg or it could not be the Heldeberg. So, again, it's risky, um, but it it could be something else. But they took the risk, and they went to go get it. So that rescue mission was called um, Operation Resolve. And note that no one has ever gone that deep, ever, to salvage anything, um, including the Titanic. 4,400 meters? Yes. Things are about to get nuts. Wait, wait. Things are about to get crazy. Um, 4,400 meters. I mean, that's like... Isn't that like two miles? Yes. What? Wait. So, yeah, like I said, no one's ever gone that deep to salvage anything, um, including the Titanic. So, what they had, they had a remote-controlled sub called the Gemini, and that will be sent to videotape what's, what's down there. So, if it is the plane... It will search for key objects, like the black box. Mm -hmm. So, and like like I said before, this is extremely difficult, okay? So what they did was they attached a um, a fiber optic cable to the boat. And that fiber optic cable was 7 kilometers long, which is about 20,000 feet. So it was enormous, right? Yeah. Um, they actually had to go to a cable manufacturer to get like a custom made cable. Cause I guess the longest one that was like available was like 6,000 feet or something like that. Um, so it took months to build the cable and to modify the ship. The sub was given thicker walls and better cameras to sustain the pressure. And, uh, the journey started, uh, sep- Oops, I lost my place. September 23rd, 1988. Um, so a little, little less than a year later, about 10 months later. Um, and you know, this was very actually, um, a long project. It was difficult, you Mm -hmm. know, 
and um, they never really had time or money to do the trials, so they went for it and they just went for it. Uh, like either it's down there or it's not. Yeah. So, um, like I said, the it can be manipulated up to uh, 4,400 meters. And this was the first time that video images were recorded this deep in the Indian Ocean. And and they noted this in the documentary. They saw some cool shit. They were like, what? What is that? What kind of fish? What? They found, like, cr- weird species. That's why I like watching, uh, like, uh, Blue, what, Blue Planet or shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> and they also found the Heldeberg. So, so it was the Heldeberg. Yes. Okay. So there was luggage everywhere. There were massive massive structures the wing the tail huge parts of the cabin but it was also like ripped apart you could see like the metal piping and like everything and it was it was spread over about five to six miles um the wreckage so this at this point you know this is a huge win for the investigators right and while they are also out looking for the wreckage on the other hand they have a an investigation into the fire, how the fire happened. Mm -hmm. So this is actually super, super interesting. And Okay. So it turns out that uh, they were screwed all along. So, yeah, you're like, what? Um, Investigators got up and went to Seattle to the uh, Boeing uh, headquarters to see how the fire safety inspection was done and how what, and how it was passed, like what their standards are and stuff like that. So the Boeing test involved setting a bale of tobacco leaves ablaze. And um, so that fire stayed within the cargo hold. So, however, the plane was designed so... Okay, wait. So I have to I have to make this make sense. So the plane <laughs> okay. was designed so the air in the passenger cabin had a higher pressure than the air oh. in the cargo area. So it was like p- positive pressure toward the cargo area. Keep the fire there with positive air pressure. Right. Okay. So if a crew member opened the door, the air um, from the passenger cab- cabin would flow into the cargo hold, stopping any smoke or gases from exiting the, through the door. So that was how it was designed, and when they did the test, um, they they like, look, guys, it's successful. Like, the fire stayed within the cargo hold. But the investigators did their own tests, because the Boeing test itself had some problems. Um, first of all, the, the Boeing test was in, like, a place where there's fans, and it could just go up into the air, and there's just, it's a bigger space. So, using a cargo hold with conditions similar to the conditions of the of actual Flight 295, investigators themselves did their own tests, and they reconstructed the fire with actual luggage and plastic covers just like the plane had. That's what carried in the cargo. So, they found that those extra pallets of luggage, as well as those plastic covers, provided fuel for the fire. Mm. So, the fire actually spread very quickly before generating enough smoke to to activate the smoke alarms. So the fire was basically, it was actually going pretty long before anyone in the crew, any one of the hmm. passengers, were even aware. That's why it, as, they, as they're going down, some of the people are already dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
this flame that was created was much, much hotter than the flame in the Boeing test. So there lies the problem. So this hotter flame heated the air in the cargo hold, like I said, which is the high, which is higher pressure. And then that heat overcame the pressure, pressure differential between the, uh-huh. the hold in the passenger cabin. And so that when the door between the passenger and the cargo area was opened, smoke and gases flowed straight into the passenger cabin. So the, the, like the, the spacing and the math was off, like the environment where it actually, where it was tested is much different than the environment where it actually mm. happened. Um, so this test was evidence, um, that the 747 combine's use of Class B cargo hold did not provide enough fire protection to the passengers. The FFA, the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, confirmed this finding um, in 1993 with its own series of tests. So at this point, they're like, okay, what, what are the actions that they're taking? What are they doing? And they looked at those safety checklists. And one list instructs the crew to turn on the circulating fans in the cabin, which they did. However, this checklist was instructions and instructions on how to dissipate smoke after the fire was already extinguished. Oh, not to do like at, when the fire's still going. Exactly, exactly. So basically, they put on those fans and bad air starts circulating, which is feeding the fire. Exactly. Oh my god. Um, they. The crew was basically feeding the passengers bad air, and they didn't even know it. Um, Carbon monoxide levels were extremely high, absolutely lethal, lethal. Mm -hmm. So, um, and when they opened the door for, you know, emergency purposes, that actually increased airflow to the fire and um, increased its oxygen supply. So... Wow. Yeah. So, like, again, these instructions were not meant for the situation that they were in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, I think in the documentary they said something like the plans were never accounted for if it, it accounted for if there was a fire in the cargo and or if there was smoke in the cabin, not both. Hmm. So, um, so they also looked into. Uh, getting the voice recorder. That was also super important. Um, They needed to know what was happening in the cockpit at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Truman, uh, one of the investigators, described doing hundreds of hours of video recording. Quote, if you can... Quote, quote, if you can imagine being on the football field with a flashlight that only illuminated a square foot of the football field... And you're looking for an earring one of the football players lost during the game, and it's also the dead of night. That's similar to, similar to what it was like on the seabed. <laughs> so that's they were, what they were looking for. Yeah. Miraculously, one of the technicians catches something, and lo and behold, they find the black box. What? So it actually took five hours to be brought back up, up from the bottom of the sea. Mm-hmm. So this was also a huge find. Um in the media, you know, front pages everywhere. At this point, it's 1989. So lead investigator, like I said, Mr. Mr. Van Zell, took the box to Washington, D.C. to open it. And he did that for safety reasons. So, you know, the apartheid was still going strong, and he knew that 
if he found, you know, the black box and took it with him, he would be accused of tampering with it or something or covering something up. So he did it, you know, he went to Washington. And so the cockpit voice recorder is, uh, or it should be the recording of the last 30 minutes of the flight. And they um, put it on, they turn it on, and it's really difficult to understand anything. It has been at the bottom of the sea for mm. over a year. Yeah. Um, in the end, they only got one minute of relevant recording. So basically, they could listen to the start of the accident before the tape stops. Mm. So they determined that 14 seconds after the fire alarm went off, or yeah, 14 seconds after the fire alarms go off, that's when the circuit breaker started to pop. And then 81 seconds after the fire alarm went, went off, the records slash and all the recording equipment, that's when that was destroyed. Uh, however, still, the still none of this reveals what really happened, you know, mm -hmm. and no one, we still don't know what caused the fire. However, we still have the wreckage to look at. So they start, they basically bring the wreckage to a hangar and they reconstruct it like a huge jigsaw puzzle. And they reconstruct the section of the cargo area where the fire most likely started. And they, they saw that the cargo area floor is untouched by fire. So mm. that means it never burned lower than about a meter off the floor. Um, which, which indicates the fire was super, super hot. Mm -hmm. And walls and windows are the ones with the severe damage. Um, but again, like, why did it start? What was on the plane that started the fire? Mm -hmm. And investigators never found why or how the fire was even started. And, you know, it's not easy burning through the outside of a plane, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Very hot. <laughs> the inquiry was never reopened, so conspiracy theories took over the media instead. Of course. Oh, classic. So, some theories. South Africa was a target, and there was a bomb in the plane, plane and this was straight-up terrorism. However, there were really no telltale signs of an explosion. Um, they never found anything suggesting that there was a bomb in the plane, and when listening to the air traffic uh, control tapes, the crew appeared to be calm and um, handling the situation. If you listen to it, it's they do seem very, very calm. They're like, yes, mm. it's an emergency. Yes, we have smoke. Um, there's, like, we have a smoke problem. Yes, like, we're landing right now. And they were like... Right. It's just unfortunate because there were they were doing the emergency procedures, but it right. wasn't... There's nothing they could have done. They were doing their job. It's just the people who were telling them how to do their job didn't do their job. Exactly. Ex there you go. Right. Um, so the only dangerous goods that were really listed on the cargo list was only computer batteries. So another theory is that uh, what caused the fire was something that was smuggled on the plane and that it's something that wasn't listed. And the South African uh, Defense Force was... Uh, this is a theory that the SADF was smuggling um, the hoax substance red mercury on the flight above for their atomic bomb project. Or um, there's a theory that um, reports from uh, the Project Coast um, 
they suggested that, oh, and the Project Host, you know what the Project Host is? The Project Host is, uh, it was a top secret uh, program where they tested um, chemical and biological weapons, and it was instituted by... Yeah, it was oh. instituted by South Africa, which also allegedly they had developed a vaccine that would make men and women sterile, and they were looking in how to um, deliver it to black people oh without them knowing. True genocide. Fucked up. Yeah. And and they were also researching um, how to put birth control in the water supply. So, shit's fucked up. Jesus. So, uh reports from there, they suggested that there was a way bill showing that 300 grams of activated carbon had been placed on, on, on the plane. And that led to speculation that this substance caused the fire, the act that so-called mm-hmm. activated carbon. However, there's another theory by a man named Dr. David Klatzow, and he was one of the forensic scientists that worked on the case, uh, with the Boeing council. He had his own theory. So, the fire could have been started by substances that wouldn't normally be carried on a passenger aircraft. So it kind of floats off the same theory that this was maybe smuggled on. So the fire, he says the fire was not likely um, a wood, cardboard, or plastic fire. So he suggests that the South African government placed a rocket system in the cargo hold and that the vibration caused um, an, an unstable chemical compound um ammonium perchlorite which is used in like missile propellant i think and um uh that the vibration caused that to ignite note that south africa was under an arms embargo at the time so Mm. the south african government therefore they were buying weapons you know secretly right so i mean that's another thing that people were looking into and to this day, we have no concrete answer as to what started the fire on the on South African Airways, Airways Flight 295. Wow. Yeah, just goes to show you these um, uh, Airways mysteries sometimes can persist for a long time. Yeah. yeah we've, we've had a few more recently, too, you know, so. Yeah, Malaysian... Right, two seventy was it? There's one that's like three forty. Right, and there's the one that's two seventy. Right. I think. Because there was the one that went down over eastern Ukraine that was hit by a missile, and then of course there's the one that went down in the ocean. Yeah, and they found debris later. Right, right. There was some debris found eventually. So anyway, enough about that. Uh, oh, what are you short? Your sources though. Oh, my sources were were um southwest or um south africa airways flight 295 documentary fanning the flames okay and an archi- an archived new york times article from 1996 titled five bodies found after a jet crash That's okay it. it was mostly the documentary yeah but the documentary had like it was pretty comprehensive it was with the it like they interviewed the main investigators and they interviewed like actual eyewitnesses and they mm-hmm. interviewed people relatives that were on of people I that could were tell like it was on thorough. the plane. I mean, yeah. right up. It was so. good. Yeah. Um, you ready for some <gasps> weird, weird shit in, in the, the news? news. <laughs> 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 Do mine first. Um, 
bad driving leads to $140 million drug bust in Sydney. No, what? File this under dumbest criminals of all time. Uh, this is from, from Reuters. Uh, and this is in Sydney, Australia. Australia. And Australia, man. Uh, <laughs> so a clumsy driver led police to a Australian $200 million, $140 million American dollar drug bust in Australia after he crashed a van laden with 600 pounds of methamphetamines into a parked police car. No. Yes. Actually, multiple parked Was police he high? cars. Oh, I, it's a mystery, but <laughs> um, he actually sped away and they caught him about an hour later. So, yeah. And uh, I think I saw a different story about this, and it was like, even dumber criminal than the guy who tried to smuggle in the cocaine under his toupee. I don't know if you heard about that guy. What? It was a Colombian guy who literally tried to smuggle a pound of cocaine under a toupee. A pound? Yeah. Didn't go Maybe well. like a little tiny baggie that you tape to your scalp or something. He didn't but do not a pound. Smuggling. Right. So this Jeez. is why they... Anyway. Jesus um, Christ. Yeah, that's my weird shit. So what do you got? I got, this is like, you have gout. It's, I got, this is, this is frustrating. It's like tragic, but it's weird. It is, it's genuinely weird. So, um, man's death that was originally ruled to be from natural causes. Um, they take his body to the funeral home and the funeral home people find stab wounds. Oh. <gasps> So there was no autopsy done, apparently. What? Um, so this is in Gwinnett County, Georgia. And um, so there was... The medical examiner was actually... Um, or the medical examiner's investigator was, you know, she got in trouble. Because mm, she listed the cause of man's death, of his death, incorrectly. So, um, his name was Ray Neal, and it was listed as being due to natural causes. However, his sister says, quote, there's no way, it was too much blood, end quote. Um, so the officer who got there the first time, he also found it suspicious, and in the report it says, quote, I observed a large amount of blood on the bed and underneath Ray Neal. I also observed blood on the walls in the bathroom and on the shower curtain, end quote. Like, a little uh, bit suspicious. Yeah, but he had several known illnesses, including hepatitis C, but uh, the investigator was like, "Mm, that's natural, Mm, natural, natural death. A lot of blood loss, I see. Yeah, that's probably natural death. Those are natural stab wounds. Oh my God. Um, Wow, that's crazy. So, but they eventually did an autopsy after, um, I assume. I, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So... Um, the funeral home director came and he was like, quote, this is something totally different than what they said. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. So then they, um, they did it. They did a proper autopsy and the medical examiner ruled the death a homicide. Yeah. Would hope so. Okay. Bit weird. Yeah. You could do that. Um, okay. Good note to end on. Uh, thanks for listening. You guys. Thanks. Thanks. I should have gone for, first. I thanks for. Gone first. I know, right? Real up note. Um, <laughs> so anyway.
So um, anyway, thanks, yeah, thanks, thanks for, for, for bearing with our different timelines. We're putting this out Wednesday night, uh, so it's Wednesday. It's Happy still Wednesday, Wednesday. So for a little bit. Um, let you you can check out our Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. Mario Text Thirty. And if you're on Facebook, <laughs> we're on Facebook too. True. Honestly, our Facebook feed is our Instagram feed. Uh, I think you could say that of multiple people. So. Facebook. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Evil Empire. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. That's, yeah. uh, that's good. It's good. <laughs> well, uh. They know everything about you. <laughs> I know, right? I know. They, they, yeah, they were talking about that on a different podcast I was listening to today. Anyway. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.